0: So one of my main motivations was really to write a book that takes Bernard Mandeville seriously as a philosopher. So Mandeville was really interested in human nature and the nature of society above all else, that's what I argue. And in the book, I try to show he has a very distinctive and sometimes a quite unsettling take on what humans are really like and how we manage to live peacefully together in society. Now, taking Mandeville seriously as a philosopher involves focusing on his arguments first and foremost. So I seek to reconstruct, to some extent, defend his moral, social, and political ideas. And scholars do this all the time uh, when it comes to canonical works in the history of moral and political philosophy. If you think of texts like Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan or John Locke's Two Treatises of Government. but it's something which, to my mind, no one has really done in any depth, at least, when it comes to Mandeville's most famous work, The Fable of the Beast. There are lots of studies that help to sit Mandeville's ideas in their historical context or to show how his arguments intervened in the political debates of his day or that trace the influence of his thought in Enlightenment Europe and beyond. But there are far fewer that really analyse his arguments in any depth on their own terms, so that's really what I wanted to try to do with the book. And in doing so, another closely related motivation is I really wanted to capture and convey something of why reading The Fable of the Bees can be, I think, quite an unsettling experience. I should probably point out not everyone has this experience when they read the book, but my sense is that people who really get Mandeville, that really see where he's coming from, that really understand what he's trying to achieve, often do have a reaction along these lines. Right, Mandeville gets under your skin. He shows us a side of human nature and thus a side of ourselves that we would prefer not to see, that we would prefer to keep hidden away altogether. He leads us to question our own motivations and to wonder whether the stories we like to tell about why we do the things that we do are really true, or whether we just tell ourselves these stories to make us feel better about ourselves and to impress other people, to flatter our pride, in other words. So one of the things I hope the book does is to bring out this kind of uneasiness that I think we should feel if we really do take Manfield's ideas seriously. The Fable of the Beast is actually a very complicated book, and to see why, it helps to be aware that it was effectively written over the period of the best part of 25 years or so. So it starts in 1705, when Mandeville published a satirical 423-line verse entitled The Grumbling Hive, or Knaves Turned Honest. The Grumbling Hive is an allusion to the grumbling and discontent of the English at the time. And in the verse, the rich and powerful bees, right, the, the, the hive is a beehive, complain of how corrupt and vice-ridden all the other bees have become. Yet it's precisely this, it turns out, that allows the hive to flourish. Every part was full of vice, yet the whole mass a paradise, Mandeville writes. And the wealthy bees are granted their wish of turning all the other bees virtuous, But as the bees become more and more virtuous, their wealth, in fact, decreases and their population diminishes because it turns out that it was their vices that was fueling their prosperity all along. And so this verse really announces the theme for which Mandeville would become famous, that private vices lead to public benefits. But the original publication of this verse didn't have a great deal of impact. So in 1714, Mandeville republished it In a book entitled The Fable of the Bees or Private Vice's Public Benefits, right, the book for which he is now most famous. And this included 20 short essays or remarks, as Mandeville called them, which claimed to explain the main ideas behind the verse. And it also contained an essay on the origin of moral virtue. However, again, this edition, the 1714 edition, still didn't cause all that much of a stir. It's not until 1723, when Mandeville published a considerably enlarged edition, that the impact of the Fable of the Bees was really felt. So the 1723 edition expanded upon the remarks and included two new essays. One is on the nature of society, and the other is a quite scathing attack on charity schools and the people at the time who were sponsoring them. And it's this edition of The Fable of the Bees that finally catches the attention of the public and really propels Mandeville to fame. So his critics accuse him of denigrating or religion or virtue as being harmful to society, while at the same time recommending vices as being beneficial to society. This is the idea that really gets Mandeville into trouble, that really causes such outrage. that The success of large and flourishing societies is based on harnessing individual vices. So the desire for luxury goods, gambling, drinking, prostitution, for example. These are vices, Mandeville insists, but they nonetheless lead to public benefits. They're good for the economy. They keep people employed and lead to greater material prosperity for all. So this is the idea for which Mandeville really becomes infamous. And although he insists that he never in fact recommended vice, he always claimed that he was only ever exposing how things really work rather than recommending that state of affairs, lots of people nonetheless took him to be celebrating this fact that vices can be so beneficial, and at the same time to be ridiculing those people who still believed that traditional virtues and religion remained important. So that's really the basis for the notoriety of the book. But it's not the end of the story about the book itself. The Fable of the Bees is widely attacked throughout the 1720s, and some of the thinkers attacking it, in fact, wrote sometimes quite lengthy and often very incisive critiques. This happens most notably uh, with thinkers called William Law and George Blewett, who aren't really remembered at all today, but wrote some very interesting takes on the Fable of the Bees. And I think at least partly in response to such critics, Mandeville decides to write and publish a second part or a second volume of The Fable of the Bees, and this is written in dialogue form. And in this volume, Mandeville sometimes revises or defends ideas from the earlier editions of The Fable of the Bees, yet he also covers plenty of new ground. He takes his arguments in directions that he'd not really explored before at all. And so by the time Mandeville completes this second volume of The Fable of the Bees in 1728, he's developed his arguments and his ideas in far greater depth than he'd ever planned when he first wrote The Grumbling Hive Verse that was really the launching pad for the initial edition of The Fable of the Bees one of the ways that I hope my study goes beyond the standard view of Mandeville is by looking at plenty of detail at these later volumes. Because I think outside of specialist circles at least, Mandeville's reputation today is in many respects still based on the ideas for which he was most famous in the 18th century, this idea that private vices leads to public benefits. And this idea that private vices leads to public benefits, I think we could say, is one way of expressing an idea which is probably now familiar, more familiar to most people, which is that if individuals are left to pursue their own self-interest, then this will lead to economic growth and be beneficial for everyone in society. So in drawing attention to the role of unintended consequences that arise from individual actions in this way, Manford is sometimes taken to have anticipated Adam Smith's idea of the invisible hand. And more generally, he's come to assume an important place in the history of economic thought, right? So he's sometimes presented as an early defender of capitalism or of laissez-faire economics. And in the book, I don't deny that there's something to this way of understanding Mandeville's intellectual contributions, but I do argue that it doesn't tell us the full story. To my mind, it leaves out many of the most interesting dimensions of his thought. So as an interpretive heuristic, I propose that we can distinguish between Mandeville's private vices, public benefits thesis, which focuses mainly on economic considerations, and what I call his Origins of Sociability thesis, which instead focuses a great deal more on social psychology and history. So my book is really about Mandeville's theory of sociability. Theories of sociability seek to explain why humans associate together um, and how different types of social institutions develop and are maintained in the long term, especially in large scale political states. And once we start thinking about Mandeville's contribution to debates on the origins of sociability, we can come to see him, I argue, as a theorist of social norms who's deeply concerned with explaining how our desire for social approval or for social esteem and our fear of disapproval too, how these things shape the way we behave in all sorts of different social contexts. And to my mind, this is the philosophically richest strand of Mandeville's thought. Yet yeah, it's one that's very easily overlooked when he's remembered chiefly for his contributions to the history of economic thought. So my aim, in a sense, is, is partly to reorientate the way that we approach Mandeville. Mandeville thinks that to understand humans, we need to focus on the various passions that motivate our actions. We're creatures of the passions, he argues, and all of our passions are self-centred and so Mandeville's taken to be a proponent of what in the 18th century was sometimes called the selfish system, the idea that all human action is ultimately rooted in some form of self-love. Philosophers today would usually call this psychological egoism and this is one of the main points on which Mandeville was challenged by many other 18th century philosophers, sometimes directly, sometimes implicitly, and I discuss these objections in a book. And and on this point, I largely side with Mandeville's critics. I don't think he offers us a compelling reason to think that all human conduct is reducible to self-love in any meaningful sense. But one of my key arguments is that we can endorse much of what Mandeville says about the importance of pride and shame in explaining human sociability, even if we reject his psychological egoism. So pride and shame are self-centered passions on Mandeville's account, but he doesn't claim that everything we do stems from pride or shame. His claim is rather that these are the predominant passions when it comes to explaining sociability. The reason for this is because pride and shame are passions that lead us to care deeply about our social status, about how other people think about us. When we receive praise from other people, we feel pride. When other people criticize or look down upon us, we feel shame. And this means that we have very strong pride-based reasons to follow whatever norms of conduct are considered socially acceptable and to perform actions that will lead other people to praise us and perhaps even to call us virtuous. One of Mandeville's key arguments and one of his most provocative claims is that we perform actions that are widely considered to be virtuous, not because we genuinely care about the welfare of society and doing the right thing for its own sake, but instead because we want other people to think highly of us, we want other people to praise us as virtuous. And crucially, this only works as long as most people don't accurately identify our true motivations. Other people will praise us if they think we're genuinely publicly spirited or care about the welfare of other people and act accordingly. But if people think that the only reason why we do good things for other people is because we desire social approval, then this in fact devalues the acts in question and they won't regard us so highly. So Mandeville argues that we could never have become sociable creatures without learning to be hypocrites, in the sense that we have to hide away our true motivations. We have to pretend to act from more public-spirited motivations than is really the case. So much of what passes for virtue in practice, Mandeville argues, turns out to be what he calls counterfeited virtue. It's not real virtue. It's just a pretense. It's just a sham. And in a similar vein, we don't, we don't only deceive other people about our true motivations. We're often self-deceived too, he argues, right? We don't like to admit the extent to which we're driven by the desire for social status and esteem. If you do something good for another person and then someone turns around to you and says, well, you only did that to receive praise, then you'll probably be taken aback. You might feel a little offended in some way. The thought that much of what we do is driven by this desire for social esteem is not one that we're typically willing to acknowledge about ourselves, right? We don't recognize the depths of pride and shame behind much of what we do. I think this is one of the most unsettling ideas that we find in Mandeville, that we're deeply self-deceived about our motivations. Now, this version of Mandeville's pride-centered theory of sociability, as I've just outlined it, does face challenges from other philosophers in the 18th century, such as David Hume and Adam Smith, amongst others. Probably the most famous response is found in Smith's distinction between what he calls the love of praise and the love of praiseworthiness. Smith argues that Mandeville conflates the desire for praise with what, Smith calls the desire for praiseworthiness, right? So it's one thing to desire praise irrespective of whether what we do is actually praiseworthy. Smith claims that only the most superficial amongst us take any pleasure in undeserved praise of that sort. Most of us, however, he argues, care about doing things that really are praiseworthy and only enjoy receiving praise from other people if it's for having done things that really do deserve to be praised. So I think that's one of the most powerful objections we find to Mandeville's thought. And if Smith is right, then I think it does take much of the sting out of Mandeville's analysis of human nature. But in the book, I offer some reasons to think that Mandeville's central claims about the prevalence of pride and shame, about just how common they are, can in fact withstand much of Smith's line of criticism. So at various points in the book, I suggest that much of Mandeville's analysis of human nature looks plausible once we take into account more recent findings from social psychology amongst other fields too. Now, of course, there are many debates amongst social psychologists themselves on the very type of questions that Mandeville is addressing. And so all I really want to show is that some of Mandeville's key claims are ones that are at least taken very seriously still today, even if few people defending them now are aware of their Mandevillian heritage. So one very interesting example, I think, is the work of the experimental social psychologist, Daniel Batson. Batson is probably most famous for defending the position that humans really do have altruistic motivations which are not reducible to some form of egoism. And in his work on altruism, Batson does use Mandeville as an example of someone who attempts to reduce all all human behavior to self-love or egoism. So much of Batson's research would indicate that Mandeville was wrong insofar as he endorsed what he earlier called the selfish system. But Batson also has some really interesting findings on moral hypocrisy. Batson doesn't discuss Mandeville in this context at all, but I think some of his conclusions support points that Mandeville really was at pains to stress, such as the observation that we're often self-deceived about our true motivations and mistakenly take ourselves to be acting from a sense of moral integrity when other considerations are actually more at play. And more generally, I think that much research today on self-serving biases and the role of reasons being more about formulating retrospective rationalizations of our conduct rather than about determining our conduct in the first place, I think this all fits very well with Mandeville's way of looking at things. So at one point, Mandeville writes that self-love pleads to all human creatures for their different views, still furnishing every individual with arguments to justify their inclinations. Right? So we spend a lot of time and energy, in other words, offering clever justifications for what we already think and for the choices that we've already made. And much of the evidence on social psychology, on the motivational weaknesses of reason, broadly supports this Mandevillian picture. And insofar as social psychologists look to the history of philosophy to find inspiration for these sort of ideas, they typically turn to David Hume, because Hume famously wrote that reason is, and ought only to be, the slave of the passions. The idea that reason is a slave to the passions, though, was also very much Mandeville's view. And one of the reasons why I think it's really helpful to go back to Mandeville is because he does draw out the unsettling implications of this way of understanding human nature in a way that's not the case with someone like Hume or other people writing around this time. At least, that's what I hope to convey in the book anyway.